Hey, welcome to the Nation's Media Weekly Podcast. Uh, my name is Joel Parker, and this is Joseph, Joseph Carlson. Carlson to my left. Welcome, welcome back. Thank you. You were uh, you went on a little trip. I did. I uh, I whisked my way up to Reno, Nevada, the biggest little city on the West Coast, in search of some giant Lahotan cutthroat trout with a bunch of buddies. Succeeded. Found them. Yeah, he sent me photos. I did. He hates Play. fish. I don't like fish. I like, like I have a, eating it. I love eating fish. I have a fear of fish. Interesting. Yeah, we'll get into fear. it in a minute. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I think actually, I think we actually talk about this fear of your fish on episode. Yeah, episode. One, now the whole world maybe. knows. Yeah. Well. Joel does this when he sees a fish. <laughs> Is there I'm a just, name for that? Like something phobia? It's called cowardice. It's <laughs> called yeah. It's called don't try immersion therapy, please. <laughs> God. No, dude, you're doing great. Yeah. No. Catch like, all these big fish PNG, when you're out in the field. Uh, <clears throat> getting a little better. Yeah. Um, yeah, not afraid of sharks, not afraid of whales, yeah. not just afraid fish. of dolphins, just fish. Just fish. Drive me crazy. Dude, who's yeah. our guest today? Oh, man, we've got a great one. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. James Barkman is with us. James is uh, one of our staff members here who uh, has heeded the call to go and to film our dispatch series in Burma alongside Dave Eubank and the Eubank family as they work with Free Burma Rangers. And so without further ado, welcome, James. Welcome back home. Thanks, guys. It's good to be home. <laughs> right before we send you back out again. I know. It's you leave in two right weeks. Leave in two weeks, headed back to Burma for two months, or give or take. Could be three months. You never know. <laughs> you never know with Dave. <laughs> you never know with Dave. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, I want to start, and I want to get a little background on you, because um, you, uh, you're legitimately one of the most interesting people, uh, I've ever met and, um, you've lived on a sailboat. You have this little yellowish orangish, um, tube of vehicle. <laughs> uh, what year is that? Your Volkswagen? 1976, the yellow submarine. Yellow submarine. Ooh. And, uh, I mean, you, you've climbed <clears throat> mountains all around the world. Um, you're a sponsored snowboarder, you're a sponsored climber, you're a photographer. Um, you're basically, um, bachelor of the year, <laughs> you know? So, which is actually going to be our next film series here at nation's media. <laughs> Find James, a Christian bachelor. Yeah. series. <laughs> <laughs> no, I told yeah. him before he went to Burma, I said, listen, like, you can't get a girlfriend before you go. So, and you didn't. So yeah. you stayed single. So. Because of you. Yeah. Thank you for. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Joel told me, he's like, whatever you do, don't get a girlfriend. Or what did you say exactly? Yeah, well, you're before, like, in the months leading up to it, like, don't fall in yeah. love. You're don't like, don't have love. kids, don't fall in love. <laughs> <laughs> We're sending you to war to cover, uh, you know, a major humanitarian crisis. And uh, yeah, if you fall in love, that, that makes going to those places extra hard. <laughs> Tell me, how did you, uh, where did you grow up? How did you become so uh, adventurous? I, I mean, I just, I hate using that word for you because it doesn't even, com it doesn't even compare. If I use the word adventurous, like, okay. It's like the hashtag adventure or so, it's just like, okay. But you are on a whole nother level. How did you become that way? Um, I grew up in Pennsylvania in a pretty small town named Bird in Hand. Everyone around us was, or everything around us was farms and agriculture. And growing up, it's a pretty cool place to be a kid. You can kind of go outside, do whatever you want. I grew up shooting guns, hunting, playing in fields. But I think as a kid, I just wanted to be, uh, just wanted to see the world. And I think sometimes when, um, 
out of when you grow up and you're not in proximity to a lot of cool stuff happening or cool people, it kind of ignites a fire in you. I think for me as a kid, um, just growing up in a small town, I wanted to see the world and that fire never really left. So as I got older and um, got out of high school, I just kind of had a dream to chase some of the passions and goals I had and kind of took a stab at it. So um, I back in the day, I quit my job. I moved into my 1976 VW bus and thought I would kind of cruise around for a year and just test the waters and um, like check off that bucket list sort of thing and then go back to college and get a real job. Mm-hmm. But I just wanted to take a year and and um, pursue photography and some of the creative stuff that I really wanted to try. And one year led to another and it's been about eight or nine years. I don't even know exactly. So I've been a freelance photographer for the most part. Um, for most of my adult life. So it's kind of been a wild ride. Talk to me about that. Like what, what drew you into photography and, and, uh, visual arts? Um, I think as a teen, I was kind of the guy with a camera or video camera that wanted to just record and document what me and my friends were doing of camera to me was just a way to tell a story or, um, yeah, like tell the story of what, I was doing or what me and my friends were doing. And that sort of developed into more um, of like developed into the commercial stuff I do now. But a lot of what I do is um, like editorial photo stuff, um, a lot of branded material campaign things, but it still has that root of storytelling. I feel like, like I've always just wanted to tell stories, whatever medium that may be, whether it's a camera, whether it's writing, whether it's a video camera in this case in Burma. So for me, I just want to tell stories however I can. Mm-hmm. I know that's how we met um, through a common friend, Drew Konzelman. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Drew, Drew's like, you know, he's been on our board of directors. And he, he and I actually were on a trip to Haiti back in 2010, which actually was kind of the inception of what Nations has become. Um, and he goes, dude, you got to meet this guy, James. He's like, he's like, he's perfect. And I'm like, well, is, is he a photographer? Is he a filmmaker? He's like, it's not a filmmaker, but he's a great photographer. And I checked out your stuff. And I'm like, I was just like, oh, my gosh. Like, you are living a life. Like, you know, we always kind of joke about having a Sean Penn from the, mm. the movie Walter Mitty, where he's just kind of like, this photographer's just off, like, hard to track him down, just, you know. And, <laughs> and you've, you're, you know, you've definitely passed the Sean Penn test. Yeah, Sean Penn is Sean envious yeah. of uh, Sean Penn in the movie is envious of the life that you've got to live. Yeah, I think so. And um, yeah, I, I think I want to hear kind of um, if you could share a little bit about how you, you, you know, you reached out to me and you said, hey, I'd like to get into Ukraine. And, I'm, and you know, I've done action sports. Uh, you know, I've, I've been everywhere. I've climbed every mountain. I've surfed every wave and I've snowboarded every mountain. So I, I want to start telling like, more stories. And I have this kind of, um, you know, my response to fear is, is pretty minimal. <laughs> so you've always been that way. So heck going into Ukraine, no big deal. And you were able to do that and, you know, tell some beautiful stories there in and amongst the war zone. And that's when we started talking about Burma. So what was kind of your first reaction about hearing about the Eubank family and just kind of that invitation to, you know, a conflicted war zone and going in and being a camera operator? Um, what was my first reaction? You're saying like hearing about the Eubanks or hearing about 
this project. Yeah, the project. <clears throat> um, yeah, so when you brought it up to me, you called me out of the blue one day, and we were talking about some other projects that we'd potentially be involved with, with Nations. And then you're like, hey, what do you think about going to Burma and being with the Eubanks, Dave Eubank and the Free Burma Rangers? I had seen the documentary about Free Burma Rangers. I'd known some people that have been with them in Burma, but I'd never met any of them personally and um, wasn't too invested in what they um, are doing. Like I just knew a small, mm-hmm. to a small degree, I knew what they were doing. But I think what I've just did in Burma and what I've been doing more of um, working, telling stories in areas that are hard to reach or potentially dangerous, I think is sort of how I'm wired. I think I have, uh, or I'm created with a level of risk tolerance that perhaps most people don't have. And I Mm -hmm. want to steward that and use it for something greater than myself. Mm. Um, I think with climb, a lot of the climbing stuff I've done, I think that, uh, that's like a muscle I've perhaps exercised and developed. Um, and so when it comes to working in areas that are dangerous or conflict areas, et cetera. Um, I think that's just part of how I'm created and I would love to do more of it. I'd love to do it, you know, throughout my career, but I think going into Burma, I didn't really know much of what to expect. I kind of went in blind for the most part. I'm, I'm used to being in cold, high altitude environments. So going to the jungle was a little intimidating. I think I've, I don't like the heat. I don't like humidity. <laughs> I'm not really <laughs> wired for it. So I kind of just went in as prepared as I could and, um, just ready to ready for anything, I guess. And I learned a lot, but <laughs> I don't even know how to explain. Um, yeah, like I did, I don't know what my expectation was going in as far as what it would be like. I think I was just pretty open to be with the Eubanks and be with Free River Rangers and try to tell their story as best I could. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was kind of my goal going into it. Mm-hmm. You know, I just heard you mention, I love what you said that, okay, well, Hey, in these, my world of action adventure sports, you know, um, developed in me this, this capacity for risk tolerance. And you're now st- saying, well, hey, I actually want to, I want to steward that towards a meaningful purpose to participate in something that's larger than myself. Mm-hmm. So um, you, like a lot of people who live in the world that you do, um, all the friends that I know that have gone into the action sports place, they do that uh, in part because they're looking to leave God behind in some ways, or they're, they're searching for a different expression of that. And I, I'm curious about, um, you, you kind of come from a unique, like, tapestry of like a faith background. And uh, I feel like it's pretty uncommon in a lot of ways to meet somebody like you who's done what you've done, but also still has this, like this love for Jesus and is, um, incorporate looking to figure out how to incorporate that into what it is that you do when you exist in a space that is, is like kind of known for not being about that. Maybe it's spiritual in some ways, but, um, sure. yeah. So could you share this a little bit about like that faith background? Yeah. Yeah, so um, I, growing up as a teenager, I was really um, like agnostic and didn't want anything to do with God or Christians. I was really bitter based off what I saw. I felt all Christians were hypocrites. I just wanted nothing to do with it and was really angry. And I had an experience 
when I was 18 that changed my whole perspective, blew my mind, and it was essentially just a supernatural encounter with God. And I couldn't deny his existence anymore. Mm. And to me, he, everything I was kind of raised with, the culture I was raised in, I just, I just knew God to be like the dude in the sky that's kind of, you know, punishing you when you do something wrong. Right. And for the first time, this experience I had, it just, it changed everything. I felt that God became a friend and not a theory to me. Mm. And that's when I, considered myself to be a Christian for the first time in my life and changed everything. So that's, that was kind of how it started for me. And then as far as what I do now, I really felt like, um, like I really hate how a lot of Christians, uh, kind of, I, (laughs) maybe we have to edit this out, but are kind of boring and don't really charge as hard as I think God intended people to charge Mm. and pursue the things that um, the passions they have. I really believe that for myself, the passions and dreams I have were put there for a reason. And if I'm not doing something about it, I'm kind of being unfaithful with what I've been given. So my dreams and my passions and the things I've done with climbing and some of the more extreme sports stuff, I felt that I wanted to do something with what I've been given and I wanted, you know, steward the passions I have because Mm -hmm. they're put inside me for a reason. Yeah. So it's more of like, I think what I've done with my life is, um, just like an understanding of stewardship and, um, like I want to, I want to be faithful with what I have because, you know, if I'm not using what I've been given, then what am I doing? Mm-hmm. We're not editing that out by the way. <laughs> yeah, and that's gold. <laughs> that's why nations exist is because, um, yeah, I think we we have the same dilemma. Is like we're going like, man, Christianity, um, religious Christianity is very neutered, very tame, mm. very very well boring. Played. Yeah. Um, if Christianity consists of going to church on Sunday, like, I no thanks. You know, it's like it's there's a million other things to be doing with my life than attending some religious ceremony. But mm-hmm. you know, we <clears throat> we're on the hunt for stories that that resonate with like, you know, the book of Acts and the Old Testament. And I think that's, <clears throat> that is a holy reality for all of us. There's a calling and um, there's a level of comfortability with risk and with adventure. But I think historically all throughout scripture, Jesus is like heeding us that invitation to come unto him, to come after him, to come follow him. And if that's into a sanctuary, um, it it's not very, that's not consistent with scripture, you know? So I think that's a holy thing that's inside of you. Mm-hmm. And I just want to, say thank you for leading and thank you for telling the stories of people like Dave and the Eubank family who um, are also heeding that call and, you know, taking their faith into the realities of the difficult things in this world. And, you know, um, so I want to ask a question like you spent, so we, you went into the field right before Christmas and and you came out about a month ago, a month and a half ago. Mm -hmm. And, um, what, what did you learn? I mean, here you are, besides all the camera stuff, I want to like, what did you see? What did you learn? Um, tell us a little bit about just the conflict of Burma. Like it's super confusing. Um, can you shed any light on that? Yeah. So I knew a little bit about the situation in Burma. I was in Thailand 10 years ago, maybe more. And I saw a refugee camp on the Thai-Burma border. So I was fairly somewhat aware. My dad and my family has worked with refugees, a lot of Karen refugees 
Um, so I'm kind of in proximity mm -hmm. to people that were escaping or suffering the from the war in Burma. But I really didn't know any of the geopolitical stuff about it. Um, studied what I could prior to going, but it's pretty complex. And I just figured that I would get the whole scoop when I got there. And that's kind of what happened. But the situation in Burma is pretty intense and sad. It's actually the world's longest running civil war. It's 73 years and counting. Essentially from the best way that I think I can articulate it is there is the regime, like the military dictatorship that is essentially oppressing and um, slaughtering people of other ethnic minority groups in the country in a power struggle to for just control of resources and everything else as well as like it's a war of racism they're really racist against other ethnic groups even though you know everyone looks the same but mm -hmm. they um there's certain ethnic groups like the karen that the that the military dictatorship and the army really hates for whatever reason and it's like almost a genocide um and then it's in two years ago, there was a military coup and a lot of the people in Burma were not necessarily involved with the war. Like some people have been fighting for 73 years, other ethnic groups in other states kind of just coexisted and um, didn't necessarily take up arms against the Burma army. They sort of just lived under a bit of oppression and, um, you know, like lived under military regime but since the coup the ethnic uh, most of the ethnic minority groups in burma ha are working together and fighting against the burma army and over the last 73 years there's been incredible atrocities crimes against humanity like terrible stuff that in my opinion is almost on par with like isis level brutality stories of kids getting skinned alive people getting burned alive oh like you know rape as a weapon of war um, it's really intense. So for me, seeing one thing I think I walked away with that was really impactful was seeing the best and worst parts of humanity. It was pretty interesting to witness. So you have the evil of the Burma army and the atrocities that they're committing and just the level of destruction and <clears throat> just the rampage of the conflict. And, and you just, and you see the evil, you hear the stories. It's, hard to imagine that a human being could even commit that type of stuff. And by contrast with the people I was with, with the free Burma Rangers, with the resistance, um, like all the different guerrilla, you know, ethnic fighters, you see such like so much humility and, um, love to the point where these people are willing to give their lives. Like these kids, 15 years old, 16 years old, that are leaving high school and joining the resistance, mm. they're willing to give their life for their friend beside them. And seeing that contrast was pretty incredible. Um, yeah, it was, it was moving. Mm. It's incredible. I think <clears throat> anytime you set out and, um, you know, are put into a position like you were put in, it's, it's just, it's world changing. How could it not be? Um, so tell me a little bit about how, maybe your perspective of missions or um, faith or anything was changed if it was by just being around someone like Dave Eubank. Yeah. Yeah. And 
I'll say this real quick. It's I don't think I mean we could talk for hours and I could barely scratch the surface of <laughs> the what's happening in Burma. Yeah, it's sure. pretty overwhelming, even in my own mind. Like, geez, what is even happening? Right. Like I'm struggling to articulate and understand all the complexities and nuances myself. So <laughs> yeah, I think I the just, biggest one is like, why is it so ignored? Like, why is this like you talk about Burma? Nobody here in the West even knows about it. You know, like if that, if what was happening in Burma today was in any other nation around the world, I feel like it would be front page news, but it's just, it's so ignored. That's my biggest. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, and I know Dave and the Eubanks would speak to this a lot more clearly, but I think that Burma does just, people aren't interested because it doesn't really affect the West as much. And therefore People just aren't interested. Also, I don't think the U.S. would want to get into another proxy war because the Burma army regime um, is funded and equipped by China and Russia and other superpowers yeah, that right. if if the U.S. got involved, I think it would just get into a, a weird proxy situation and we're already at a proxy war with Russia. Mm-hmm. So that's a whole other topic <laughs> <Yeah>. or podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but what did, how was I impacted or how? Um, what was your question again? Yeah, I just, I mean, your time with Dave, yeah. there, there's no way that it get, can't be life-changing, yeah. was it? And uh, if so, how? How so? Yeah, I think sometimes when you're around Christians, things just get more complicated. And around Dave and the people there, things just get more simple. Mm-hmm. And kind of Dave's whole program is just, he says it again and again. He's like, you know, we're here for love. He's like, if you're going to be here, do it for love. Mm-hmm. And I think it just boils everything down to something that's really simple and you don't have to be, um, yeah, it's, it's just, I think everything they're doing is out of this deep level of compassion and love that is really awesome. And the way that Dave follows what he believes God is telling him to do is just really simply praise all the time. Like it's, <laughs> Pretty much every other second, you know, sometimes you don't even know he's praying until he like finishes it with like, amen, <laughs> you know, cause it's just so, um, yeah. second nature. Yeah. So I think it was really cool to be around people that are, um, full of faith, but, um, aren't really making it complicated. I think was a big takeaway mm-hmm. for me. And yeah, I don't know. I mean. It's hard to even I've like I've only been back for a month and I'm still kind of like organizing my thoughts about everything. It's a, it was all sort of a whirlwind, but mm. I think a lot of the people there, like the um the ethnic people, they they really have so little and um just their level of sacrifice and you know like the level the problems they have are real problems, but no one is playing the victim card. No one's really falling into self-pity. They're just, in fact, it's quite the opposite. They're becoming like more full of love and like they want to help people even more to the point where they're giving up their own lives. And um, that's kind of, it, it's pretty incredible to witness. Mm-hmm. I was you know, you mentioned that powerful line from Dave that, hey, if you're going to be here, be here for love. Do it, do this all with love. And um, you, you're describing some of that there. And I'm kind of curious, are there any moments that stand out to you that, you know, like oh, moments in camp or moments on the trail or moments in, on the front lines where you kind of saw uh, those actions marked by love that like impressed, you know, impressed you? 
Yeah, I think there's a lot of things that Dave, the Eubanks, Freebird Rangers as an organization, a lot of things they do that doesn't really make a lot of tactical sense. Mm. Mm-hmm. And um, it's perhaps like pretty foolish to do if if that equation is removed, like if the equation of love is removed, mm. it's like, why are you doing this? There's it's a terrible it's really dangerous. There's really like the um, perhaps like the risk versus reward is mm-hmm. just out of control. Like this isn't something that would be wise to do generally. Right. But because that's not they're not making the decisions they make based out of those sorts of um, like variables. They're doing it because they're like, all right, we're willing to risk our own lives to help people out of love. Mm-hmm. And so that seeing that again and again, like the places they went or we all went and um, the things they were a part of, like on the front lines and all of that was was really impressive i think it's and that was only i was only with them a small chunk of time they've been doing this for 30 years Mm. again and again and again and again um you know like making really (laughs) like terrible decisions perhaps like Mm. tactically unsound decisions but um willing to put them put others before themselves Mm. to the point where they could lose their own lives Mm -hmm. is really incredible to see, to not just see once, but like see again and again yeah. and um, just see them living that out in their yeah. lifestyles. Pretty wild. I love how I'm hearing you kind of describe this, you know, there, this, these two competing logics. Um, you said many times, Hey, they're making tactically unsound decisions mm-hmm. and the risk versus reward factor here is like, I mean, it's skewed in a way that no sane person um, or maybe even military commander might say like, yes, this is the right course of action. But when you inject love into it, it changes the whole dynamic, the whole equation. And that's really, there's these two competing logics, the logic of the world, which is towards self-preservation, power, conquest, right? Um, and then the logic of God or the kingdom, which is kind of upside down. And you describing Dave's prayer life, I think that's a key insight into what's going on there with the with the Eubanks, which is like, this is a picture of what the logic of obedience looks like. Um, a person of faith, not, not this blind obedience to religious ritual, like we were discussing earlier, um, or these cultural dogmas that we have that like, aren't really life giving that don't, that lead to apathy rather than this sense of like being filled with God and, and wanting to move out with purpose into the world. The, the logic of obedience and the logic of prayer is what we're seeing, uh, guide Dave and their family and the Eubank organization to do, which is like, in some ways, I love that because it's like, well, how do you, how do you explain doing that for 30 years in these places and not like, I mean, I know they've suffered losses, enormous losses. Like, you know, I mean, people die doing, um, and yet they have still somehow as a family been protected and, um, and brought through so much. So I, there's not a question in there more so just like a little bit of awe and admiration. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Well said, but maybe not <laughs> not helpful for continuing the conversation. <laughs> We're still learning. Let's just We're pause and digest. Let's just uh, take uh, a moment. You know, Claire, if she was here, would say, "Hey, guys, it's okay to just kind of pause for a second. It is okay. Yeah. What's a what's a nice pause between friends? Hmm. Um, well, speaking of pauses, you've had a you've had a nice couple 
I mean, you never take time off. You're always doing something, but you're uh, a couple of weeks, you're headed back. How are you feeling about returning? Um, how are you feeling about um, jumping back into the jungle and back? Yeah. With, Wait, back can we the... just, I just want to point out that, yeah, your version of rest in lots of ways was to what, go get on a boat and <laughs> sail it up the coast of Alaska looking for icy winter waves. <laughs> Normal. Yes. Normal. Nor totally normal human normal. way to recharge after yeah. being in the jungles of Burma. <laughs> yeah, I, I came back and I was a little wound up. I feel like mm. living over there <clears throat> and sleeping in a different place many most nights. Um, I came home and I felt a little restless. I'm like, I can't just sit here. I got to go do something. So I went to Alaska and <laughs> surfed really cold waves. It was fun. But as far as going back, um, I think I'm headed back in two weeks. Pretty excited, but it is um, it is a lot of work. It's going to be rainy season, so it's just going to be hot and humid. Everything <laughs> that I hate. <laughs> it was actually dry season last time, so it wasn't as hot or humid as I expected. It was kind of cold a lot of times, which is not what I expected from the jungle. But yeah, I'm excited. I've you know I got really close with a lot of people over there. A lot of the ethnic kids and a lot of the rangers and you know these people that have come that ran away from the cities and um, left their lives behind and just joined the resistance and some of them found their way to FBR how it works is a lot of these kids come from other ethnic um, militaries so they have maybe it's like a kind of small guerrilla group maybe it's more traditional army and then their commanders will send them to freedom rangers to get better training um, to get what kind of training specifically so it's mostly, uh, I shouldn't say mostly, but it's a lot of like medical training. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of tactical skills, like navigational skills, um, how to survive in the jungle, how to swim. A lot of people don't know how to swim because they've never been around water. They've only grown up in the mountains, et cetera. Uh, teaching them to swim, teaching them those types of skills, teaching them how to use a camera or a video camera and document what they're seeing. A big part of what Free Burma Rangers does is advocacy. So their goal is to, Dave always says, help the people and get the news out. So however they can help the people, they will. However they can get the news out, they will. And practically, that often looks like arming these kids and these people with a video camera or a camera and teaching them how to use it so they can go you know, off and do their own thing and document the stuff that's happening, which otherwise no one would ever know or see. Um, so it's a lot. It's medical skills, um, navigational skills, um, you know, learning how to operate video camera and uh, things like that. And like learning how to demine things, kind of this types of skills that you would need if your country was at war, if, if you were like on the guerrilla side of a civil war. So a lot of people will come from their other militaries and then go back, get training with FBR and then go back to their own, you know, back to their original um, brigades or groups, whatever, and continue fighting with their own ethnic armies. And sometimes they'll stay with Freedom Rangers and continue to do what, continue to help the FBR, which is, you know, with humanitarian aid, the advocacy angle, things like that, and training um, more ethnic people to be equipped to help the, mm. you know, their people that are getting killed. So, yeah, that's, I, it's a lot more than that, but that's yeah. kind of it in a nutshell. Well, it's good because a, a lot of people, 
how, I mean, Dave and Karen and the whole Eubank family and <clears throat> the Free Burma Rangers, they live in this very nuanced world that it's really hard to identify from the West. So it's easy to go like, oh, they're doing ministry in a war zone. Dave's former special forces, therefore, you know, he's this Rambo preacher guy, which isn't true. You know, like mm -hmm. he, yeah, they do ministry in the very front lines. They choose to go into the conflict um, because women and children and, you know, communities all exist in and amongst this war zone. And then the skills that they are passing along aren't like, you know, special forces, like how to like, like sweep a building, but it's rather, yeah. it's like, it's navigation. It's how to swim. It's how to cross a river. It's how to mm -hmm. treat wounds. The jungle school of medicine is like, it's military medicine techniques, mm -hmm. you know? And so, um, yeah, help, like help us understand that a little bit more, like, like the, specifically like the jungle school of medicine, like how did that come to be? How did you see that in action? And, um, what were some of your takeaways? Yeah. So a lot of people, have in Burma have grown up in cities or towns and they've, yes, they're kind of in proximity to jungle, but they've never lived in the jungle and they don't know how to navigate the jungle. So now as the military is continuing to advance and seize territories, they're forced out of these places that they've been, that they're born and raised and they have no idea how to live in the jungle. It's like right now, if you took half of Carlsbad and told him to go live in the woods for the next two years. What would they even do? It's like, yeah, imagine yeah. it's starved to death. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, fish tacos and Starbucks. <laughs> so I think people in Burma are a little more equipped than the population of Carlsbad, but it's sort of the same dynamic. These people don't know. Well, how tell, to... tell us about that kid that you met, that kid who was like video game kid, kind of overweight. Yeah, yeah. Crazy kid. So one of the guys that got pretty close to his name was Cabal two or his revolution name was Cabal two. Um, they all have a revolution name. They usually don't know each other's real names mm -hmm. because a lot of people have family in the city still that is under Burma army control. And if the, if the army found out about their real identities, you know, they would target the families, target yeah. the families. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All of that stuff. So this kid, Cabal two, um, he grew up in Yangon. He was a video game kid, super overweight, like 250 pounds at 17 i think like mm. pretty big dude and he just grew up sort of um with a wealthy grandma i believe so he kind of had everything handed to him didn't know anything about the war that had been happening for 70 plus years in burma in the in the places that are burma army controlled there's a lot of propaganda so these people have no idea what's happening you know just a few you know just around the corner mm. so when the coup happened, the military coup happened two years ago, everybody started protesting peacefully and um, the military and the cops started gunning people down. It, it was peaceful protests turned into just slaughter fest. Mm -hmm. So this kid Cabal saw his friends brains blown out beside him, you know, at 18, 17. And he's like, dude, I'm forget this. I'm running to the jungle and I'm going to join the resistance. Mm -hmm. He didn't even know, you know, he didn't even know there was a resistance. He's just like, we have to fight. This is terrible. Mm -hmm. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids had the same exact experience. So they all run into the jungle because they start getting killed, you know, by the cops and by the military. And they link up with all these other, um, ethnic fighters that are of different ethnic, um, background so it's like karen kareni there's i think 158 
different ethnic groups in Burma. It's mm, wow. crazy. So he links with these guys. He joins PDF, which is um, called People's Defense Force, and they teach him how to make mines, set claymores. There's not enough guns to go around, so he just starts, you know, helping how he can, like set it, helping with ambushes, just all like the logistical side of stuff. And his commanders, after a few, I think it was two years, he's he spent two years he spent in the jungle, didn't know anything, 250 pounds, didn't know how to tie his own hammock, like didn't even know how to tie a knot. Mm. And he kind of just like lost a lot of weight, ate a lot of fish paste, ended up at Free Burma Rangers. And um, because his commander sent him there for better training, like we were talking about. And he speaks perfect English. He's kind of just like a kid that you would meet anywhere in the U.S., you know, like we watch the same shows, we listen to the same music, we were listening to Gorillaz the whole time no there together, it was awesome, <laughs> which they released a new album, pretty good. Oh, yeah? A little Gorillaz plug. Okay. okay. Um, so it was. it's just crazy to meet someone like Cabal and so many others that have the same type of stories. Every kid has a story that just absolutely blows your mind, and what they not only have been through, but what their life looks like, you know, moving forward, there's, there's sort of no end in sight. Mm. And it's just a, a crazy lev- level of bravery um, that you witness from these kids. And it kind of just puts everything in perspective. I come back here and life's pretty good, you know, like I, what can I even complain about that would hold a candle against what people, what these kids, my friends are dealing with and living yeah. through, you yeah. know? You know, we were mentioned we were catching up a little bit yesterday and um I thought you had a great insight when you were talking about some of that the shift between what you saw there and developing relationships like what you just described and then coming back here and you know reconnecting with your friends and the different communities that you you know you're a part of and um and seeing like just how consumed we can be here in the West with things that are just so utterly trivial mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um but rather than being kind of self-righteous about that um, or super judgmental, I heard a lot of compassion in you and a lot of um, a lot of wisdom because you said something along the lines of, you know, I have to be really, it'd be, it's really easy to become cynical and to be judgmental about where, um, like how we in the West live. And, but being that isn't, that's not going to do you any good. And it's also not going to do uh, it's not going to honor or respect either mm-hmm. the communities here or the people that you met there. So I was wondering if you could just share a little bit more about that. Yeah, I'll do my best to articulate it because I think that's sort of like a working yeah. <laughs> theory in my mind, you know, like how to navigate all that stuff. Because um, I've been other places in the world that are have really sad situations. And when I come back and people are complaining about the dumbest stuff ever, you know, and like people's problem, people's big problems are just the dumbest stuff you've ever heard, it's hard not to get cynical. I'm like, how can you even complain about that? Mm-hmm. Like you have plenty of, like your life is great. You live in California. You have all the money you could ever want. You have a great education. Like how can you even, mm-hmm. how can you even be bummed? So I think um, like one, I am a lot more grateful for the things that we have in the West and just the things we have in first world countries You know, like, I think it's really, it would be really sad to become cynical because, like, the people that I'm just with, like, in the resistance, they're fighting for the opportunity to just go to a movie theater when they want or go to a show. Like, I met a lot of kids that came from, like, the music scene or industry in Burma, and 
you know, they had their band, they were living their dream, and now they're fighting in the jungle, just mm-hmm. like metalhead kids, you know, just kids that you'd meet, same as like kids you'd meet here. Yeah. And, um, you know, they they are fighting for the right to live life how they want and have the freedom to do what they want. Mm-hmm. And so, like, th- here in the West, we have those things. In a lot of places, they don't have those things. So I'm just really grateful to be, mm-hmm. to, like, eject out of a country at war and come back to the U.S. and come back to California, one of the nicest place, place San Luis Obispo, where I live, the nicest place in California <laughs> by far. <laughs> um, I'm just more grateful than I've ever been for the privileges I have and the opportunities I have and the freedom I have. And then, two, I think I want to, um, rather than become cynical, I want to kind of assume a responsibility to help communicate the things that I've experienced and learned and seen to other people. Cause how could they have the perspective I have? They haven't been to the places I've been. Mm-hmm. So rather than like being cynical at them, I want to, I want to use, I want to be motivated to, you know, work at um, using my skills and passions um, in a way that can help people, you know, learn and understand and in, um, hear about these types of things that I experienced, you know? So yeah. it's kind of like invite them into the story yeah, that you've been swept you know, up into. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, and kind of trying to develop the language for this. Dude, <laughs> really you know, uh, yeah. A plus for a first pass, man. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear about, um, your, uh, budding career as a videographer and that transition from, uh, being a photog to a cinematog. Yeah. All thanks to you, huh? Well, I'm, yeah, that's what I was fishing for. <laughs> How is it different? I mean, you, you obviously are a very skilled photographer, and you know, as uh, as a director, I I'm telling you, you're a very skilled videographer too. As we've uh, been going through the footage, it looks incredible. Yeah. It's it's unbelievable. And I'm so excited to. I want you to talk about dispatch in here in a little bit, but um, before we get there, just yeah, what I mean. A still moment is beautiful, and you take a lot of time to establish its parameters and its color and its composition. And video, obviously, I mean, story, which is you just articulated so well, is very important to you. And uh, video is more story-driven. And so what were some of your challenges? What were some of your uh, findings along that journey? Yeah, I think video, shooting video, especially the type of video that I was doing is just a lot more intimate and personal. You kind of have to be okay with sort of, um, you know, like being abrasive at times with photo, you can kind of get in and get out and you're done, you know? And Mm. it's like, it's not really taking up a lot of people's time. You're not staying in the way, but with video, you, (laughs) you just have to be that guy, (laughs) (laughs) you know, that everyone is really annoyed at and you kind of, just have to like, me. put hey, your head me. down and excuse grind me. a little. So in like a practical sense, that's one thing that's, you know, different than photo. But um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I think I've, I've shot a lot of video before, but not really in this capacity. I think it's kind of helps me look for a lot of the things that would otherwise go unnoticed with photo. It's a lot more like because there's less frames, you know, you're kind of focused on more of the hero images with video. There's a lot more intimate moments that maybe wouldn't make a great photo, but they make a great part of the story. So it was cool to kind of um, 
use a different medium and um, just see things a little differently than I normally would when shooting photos. Mm. And obviously just the <laughs> the weight of things. I mean, as a one-man run-and-gun operation, <clears throat> you have a lot of things that you need, the power stuff to keep things charged, um, just... Which, like how the, big of a nightmare is that in the jungle? It's pretty annoying. Uh, the <laughs> FBR guys had solar panels, so they would kind of charge my stuff, but I sort of had to be on top of it, and it it's a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> so normally, most days, I barely had enough juice in my laptop to dump cards on the hard drives, mm -hmm. and then, you know, I was then I was drained. And some days, like, I couldn't finish dumping hard drives because I didn't have enough juice. I had to wait till the next day. Mm. But then the next day, you you know, have a really late day and you can't get to it. So now you're three, four days backed up and now you need more juice, you know? So just navigating the power situation was pretty tough. Um, and just all the things that with video, you might not need them in the moment, but you have a backup camera and you have things that you're sort of your contingency plans or like some of the tools you need. So things like that, um, just make it challenging, but it was, it was a lot of fun. And, I like grindings and I think that, yeah, it was, it was an awesome challenge and hopefully I didn't blow it too hard. No, you, it's a home run. And I think, yeah, what I, what I, why I thought you were a perfect hire is because, um, you know, all, all the activities that you're into all have this commonality of like, you're constantly solving problems and that is filmmaking, sure. especially documentary filmmaking. You're constantly solving problems. And so I'm like, kind of checked all the boxes, just you didn't have the cinematography background. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> I think it's going to be, the audience is going to be really excited to see, I, really blown away by the images that you captured. We were deeply moved in the edit bay, which doesn't happen very often. So um, <laughs> good on you. Um, yeah, I want to talk a little bit, just for a minute, let's geek out on um, just kind of the nerd stuff here. What um, Talk to us about your kit that you went in with. I mean, obviously you you have to carry all your stuff. You're hiking, I mean, miles upon miles each day. And uh, so what's on your backpack, starting with your camera kit and then moving into your just like, what personally did you bring? Yeah, so it's, I kind of had a bit of a learning curve at first because Dave always says you need to be ready to like run and survive with the what's on your back at any moment. So like being in a war zone, I think, and, and Dave actually explained this to me. I helped articulate it pretty well. Being in a war zone is kind of like being in, um, like in the mountains, like in the Alpine. So you have in the mountains, you have objective hazards, which are, you know, they're not conscious or cognitive. They can just happen at any moment. They don't care about you, but you can be killed by them. So it's not like, like in the mountains you can die, but you never know when or how, and it's kind of, you might be fine or you might get killed. In the war zone, it's similar to where you have all these hazards, but rather than objective hazards, they're subjective hazards. They're actively trying to kill you. They're, you know, it's not like they're unconscious cornices or crevasses or bergstrunds, mm -hmm. avalanches, you name it. They're like, they don't want to die either. <laughs> so I think um, like being in that, like being in Burma, you just have to be ready to like run um, if you get ambushed or like you get cut off. So the time that I was there, like things got things ended up being pretty chill. We avoided like three or four ambushes that would have probably been insane. 
but we kind of just somehow avoided them in years past. You know, sometimes they just run and don't stop. Dave and the Eubanks have crazy stories of just like essentially running for days from the Burma army that would kill them if they found them. Right. So all this, go, Dave, this is what Dave's telling me as I get there. And he's like, you need to be ready to carry everything and run and not only run, but keep up and also survive in the jungle when we have to camp in the jungle. So I'm trying to figure out how to take <laughs> Great. like the things I need. So to how many batteries should I bring? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So as far as my personal stuff, I was pretty minimal. I in as a like alpine climber, alpinist. Um, I'm a huge weight nerd and pretty like just a minimalist and take mm-hmm. the essentials and only what I absolutely need. So I'm pretty good about those types of things. Had a sleeping bag, had a tarp, had a air mattress, had a hammock. Um, like wore the same clothes every single day, um, and the gear was kind of just figuring out how what I needed on me at all times and then what I could slap on a donkey or something um, or a porter. So What's a donkey? <laughs> just a mule. <laughs> What's a donkey? <laughs> they have like, they have mules and donkeys, some horses that on certain missions. Did they're donkey? Donkey, yeah. I heard donkey. Did you hear donkey? <laughs> I heard it, but I understood it. That that's, that's my Pennsylvania accent. <laughs> I was like, I'm like, so this is some tech thing I've never heard of. <laughs> no, an animal donkey. Donkey. Yeah. A donkey, you yeah. know, uh, from like a, the movie Shrek. A, a donkey. It's D U N K E Y. They're very good at basketball. <laughs> so um, I think that the, the Eubanks and FBR were pretty helpful with like helping me use the stuff that I didn't need on me at all times. Like they would take that with the porters or put it on the meal or whatever. So yeah, I kind of figured out the kit that I needed on me at all times, but it took a few weeks, I think. (laughs) And there's some really tough days where I had too much stuff and we're just doing miles and miles and miles in really hot weather up and down mountains. It was pretty hard. (laughs) It was really hard. I lost a lot of weight the first month, got super skinny mm. um, just from walking everywhere yeah. mm-hmm. every day and eating. You've like, been able to gain any of that back on food. California breakfast burritos? And, you Not know. yet, but it's bulk up season, baby. We're getting there. <laughs> the carbo load for the next two weeks straight. Let's talk about, uh, let's talk about odor management here for a minute. Um, are you just to kind of let it, let it, let it do what it do. Are you uh, more? Uh, you got your little patchouli oil, or, or what are we? Ta- are you doing laundry every night? Like, talk to me oh, about dude, your scent. Yeah. Remarkably, I don't really sweat that much. It's a weird thing. Even in the jungle. Even in the jungle, dude, but I'm my back sweats you. a lot. Uh, so, what I where I don't sweat, my back makes up for it. It all comes out the back. <laughs> but yeah, there's usually where the fbr crew camps is near a water source or a river or a creek so pretty much every day you're washing your shirt and or like taking like a bath even if it's a little spit bath sort of thing so you kind of stay pretty clean surprisingly Mm. i thought it would be a lot more grunge but like everyone usually takes a bath every day or every other day just because there's water you know Mm. you're not going to camp with hundreds of people in a place that has no water, you know, you have to, yep. you have to plan around water so people can drink and stay alive. So stayed pretty clean. Um, but some people did not, <laughs> some people's odor management was less than <laughs> desirable. 
those who will not be named. <laughs> but you know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they don't. That's even worse. You know who you are, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <clears throat> Well, should we do some hot takes? Gosh, I didn't write any down. Oh, so come on. Have to be top of the mind. Dude, all right, top of the mind. Well, that's a good challenge for us. I mean, we're it's like it's double hot takes cuz we're putting What's our What's the hot take? All right, well, since so uh, the end it's the end, towards the end of the conversation. Put me in the hot seat. Yeah, we've usually been having this like deep conversation about X, Y, or Z like we've had. We've covered some great ground. Mm -hmm. And you know, we're kind of coming up for air and so towards the end it's like popcorn. You yeah, know, speed dating oh, sort no. of style like oh, no. right. so how we example, really get to know Question you. number <laughs> 1, James Barkman. Um, best wave that you've ever surfed. You're taking too long to answer this. Hmm. This is like top of the mind. Yeah, you got it. There's no wrong answers. I remember this wave at Westport in Washington. Ooh, oh, my dude. home, my home break. Insane wave. The cove inside? At the jetty. The jetty. And it was like a double overhead day and I was on a really tiny twin fin, but somehow knifed into this huge set. And I just remember like like barely making it dropping in and the my this 20 is the keels are like the it's like a keel fish and they're set kind of weird so when you go fast enough it hums oh mm, and yeah. just being like whoa, 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 as i'm flying down <laughs> like on the bottom turn just yeah that was a sick one that's when you know you're going fast <laughs> when your surfboard yeah. starts singing um best off-road vehicle stock off-road vehicle Well, I may be biased, but I do have a 1998 Toyota T100. Dude, I was wondering if that was yours out in the parking lot. <sighs> so I'm going to go with the T100. So Toyota guy. <laughs> yeah. My man. Dude, it's hard yeah. to beat the Yoda. 1976 VW bus. Also a good mm, one. <laughs> wrong. <laughs> it's better than you think because the engine is in the rear, like, and it's, um, mm -hmm. it's like rear-wheel drive. So you have a lot more traction. Yeah. Than Don't you also expect. drive with noise-canceling headphones? <laughs> At times. That has nothing to do with the off-road capabilities <laughs> of the vehicle. Uh, just. All right. Have, uh, in all of your Alpine days, uh, have you ever had a mountain goat come and drink your urine? <laughs> no, but I wish. That was right. a specific question. Have you? Well, I've what does only... that even mean? Yeah. <laughs> so I, um, I did a little bit of climbing in college and with some buddies, and I had one uh, who he, actually the only like multi-pitch alpine climb that I've done um, in the North Cascades, and we're sitting up there, actually at the base of the route, and he's like, "Hey, you want to see something cool?" I was like, "Of course, like cooler than what we're about to do," you know? Um, and he's like, "Yeah, just go pee on that wall." And then watch. He's like, I bet you. He's like, I bet you ten bucks or a beer when we get down that within five minutes there will be um, a mountain goat come what? like drinking our urine. And I was like, What are you Disgusting. talking about? This is crazy. So um, sure that was, was also. Sure, I think, it wasn't a donkey. I think that was also his way of, of getting donkey. me a rookie to be like, Hey, dude, um, take a pee before you get you know you get on the wall. And uh, sure enough, dude, did it within five minutes around this tiny little like you know this tiny little crack comes. <laughs> this mom mountain goat and a little baby and they just run up five feet away and they're just like and he's like yeah dude they need the salt where else are you going to get it up here Gosh, or you know joseph's urine you i guess know. apparently okay you've been <laughs> you've been on the trail all day are you looking forward to sleeping in a hammock or on your air mattress huh my air mattress i've spent hundreds and hundreds of nights on that thing 
So it's kind of like what do you use? What which, which one do you use? It's the Thermarest X Therm. <sighs> yeah, so insane, dude! Insane. I did this big motorcycle trip from Alaska to Patagonia, and every night you of know, that trip, normal for a year and a half, I slept on that air mattress, and it just never dies. It's crazy. Wow. From like the jungle to the mountains, it's really loud though. So. You're like rustling around, she'd be awake. Yeah. Well, it's also, I mean, that's good. It scares off the critters. You're right. You know, you sound like a giant, <laughs> giant rattlesnake. <laughs> Speaking yeah, of rattlesnakes, any uh, any near death encounters with wildlife out in the, uh, you know, or spooky or sacred like encounters? In my life or in Burma? It, yes. Either. Let's go. Let's go in Burma, and then let's go like your whole no, man, adventurous career. I have these kind of like morbidly dark goals of being attacked by dangerous animals like if i got attacked by a shark which i just told a story before this of how i almost got attacked by a shark in oregon yeah but if i had and survived of course i could get a really sick like shark jaw tattoo you know or if i got bit by a rattlesnake (laughs) i could get a really sick rattlesnake tattoo but if you get a tattoo and you aren't attacked by a rattlesnake or shark you're a total poser you know 100 percent agree so i kind of want to get attacked by these animals if I knew I could survive, so I can get these rad tattoos. <laughs> Which is sort of... Uh, that's, that, see, that's why I'm like, you'd be perfect for Burma. <clears throat> right there. We're getting to know the real James Barkman. We are. And I did get one tattoo in Burma. <laughs> Stick and poke? <laughs> no. Oh. Like, with the gun. Wow. Which right, one, like, take your shirt off. Let's see it. Yeah. Well, I'd have to drop my drawers. Oh, All right. wow. Sorry. No, I can't my, do that. It's on my is... upper thigh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I got it by this guy, Maui. He's really legendary like guerrilla commander of KNDF. It's one of the ethnic like military groups. And he just gave me a tattoo. It was crazy. Didn't even get infected. (laughs) (laughs) So when? I know this is an impossible question because you've spent so much of your young life are like exploring uh, naturally beautiful places. But is there is like top, top one or two like, natural beautiful places that you've seen that just kind of made your jaw drop hmm you know there's a lot i think a lot of my adult life has been in the pursuit of these places i think once you experience them in the mountains and the ocean everything else is kind of yeah other things are kind of boring so it's been a lot of i've been really fortunate and i'm really grateful to have experienced a lot of incredible places that are just mind-blowing. But I think the mountains for me are always the most intense, most intensely beautiful experiences I've had. It's always kind of a spiritual experience for me as well. Just like the Alaska Range, I've had some incredible moments. The Karakoram, the Andes, um, yeah, that all of those places. I don't think I could name one, but mm. being in the mountains and being like, like pushing yourself mentally and physically being really scared and being with people that you trust, you know, with your own life, I think just kind of creates this, it kind of enhances mm. <laughs> the location or the experience in general. So mm. I'm kind of a mountain guy. Okay. Question. I mean, I assume the answer is all, all of the above, but like, you know, in your, in your climbing days, I mean, you're doing ice climbing, trad climbing, free climbing. Like what is, what's your, what type of climbing do I do? Yeah. Like, what's your favorite type of climbing? I really like, 
I mean, well, first of all, I like alpine climbing. So that's, you know, every high elevation, snow and ice, rock. It's kind of the combination of all these different climbing mediums, mm-hmm. um, depending what mountain you climb, of course. But I really love ice climbing. I really love like snow, um, just navigating these sorts of terrain features um, and mixed climbing. So often I'll be you know, on a route and you have an, like an ice pillar coming down. So you have an ax and a cramp on in it, and then you've got rock on this side. So <clears throat> it, it's, it's mixed. Yeah. So you're kind of jamming in a cam while you're placing the ice screw and having like climbing that type of, uh, route or medium is just, it's like the combination of all the best <laughs> things. And of course being high and no fall terrain, it's all really fun. I think that if, for me and my friend, the guy I climb with, for the most part, if we're not really pushing the envelope, um, I think we're kind of bored. So we try to climb stuff that <clears throat> is we don't know if we're going to be able to get it. Yeah. And that's usually like pretty scary. So kind of these mediums mixed with like an element of fear and risk is pretty addicting. <laughs> so, okay, so uh, greatest climber who's ever lived and um, who's like who's who's your hero right now like who's that's alive and climbing i don't know if i could that's pretty arbitrary but one of my climbing heroes was jeff Lowe. Mm. he passed away recently from als actually which is Mm. insane he was a really healthy like legendary climber and pioneered a lot of like ice climbing technique and um style and just ice climbing in general first ascents everywhere He's, there's a really iconic photo of him. He's got a mustache almost as good as yours, but he's like super blonde on some, uh, maybe we can like interject this into the podcast screen. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 This crazy photo of him. You'll see it right here. <laughs> <laughs> um, that he's just legendary dude, but greatest climber alive now. I don't know. I'd have to think about it. Um, I think there's just so many different styles of climbing and like, mm. There's some guys that are a bit mad. Um, I think, um, uh, have you seen The Alpinist? Yeah. Yeah. Dude, Mark was pretty legendary. Gorgeous you know, film. There's a lot of underground people that you don't really know of, but they are out there yeah. climbing and pushing the bar. So I don't know if I have an answer for the best climber alive now. Let me ask you this. You have such, you've done a lot of thinking around like rational fear and irrational fear and kind of that fine line between them. How do you, do you know when you're in that moment of like, okay, I'm stepping into something that's highly critical right now. This may be outside of my skill ability. Um, You know, like how do you navigate those moments that are critical for you? You know, you talk about NFZs, no fall zones. You've talked about, you know, just navigating and, uncharted areas and terrain and um there's an addiction level to that that you obviously have and and uh, i think a lot of great action sports athletes have and adventurists um but talk to us about just living in that moment have you what have you learned um i think one thing i've learned is that your body or your mind will break before your body so you're always capable of more than you think you are physically because you kind of most, you know, you'll give up long before your body will give out. Mm. And so like the mental strength sometimes that it takes to do things is, is like this other 
aspect of climbing that you wouldn't um, necessarily think of as much. I, one of my climbing mentors, he used to be more of a free solo guy, and he would put as much energy into his like mental strength or mental um, training. Sure, as he would his physical training. It was really bizarre, hmm. but he's a free solo guy. Like <laughs> zero like, margin for error. Yeah. And um, I think for me, like the mental game is pretty fascinating. I don't really know, to answer your question, I don't really know where the line is, but I think thus far I've come pretty close to it and like made the right choices, you know, because I'm still alive. But um, I think figuring out what your personal threshold is mentally and physically is kind of like, it's almost a fluid thing and it, it's a really... Um, it's a really awesome thing to experience when you, you know, kind of find where that is mm -hmm. for you personally, like being in a place where I've been on mountains that, you know, I just had nothing left physically or mentally. And somehow you kind of keep pushing past it and are successful. And it's just, it's like the most euphoric experience that like, I think life can give you is mm -hmm. pushing past these barriers, mental and physical. Sure. Um, and of course, like, threading the needle of what's too dangerous and, you know, what is acceptable. I was in an avalanche experience last year, pretty much exactly a year ago, mm -hmm. and miraculously survived. This was in Norway in the Arctic. And, you know, in that scenario, like we, I crossed the edge. I didn't know I did until you're sliding down the mountain when it's about a thousand feet. It was crazy, you know, and... I crossed the line, you know, it was too far. Like I made the wrong call or we made the wrong call, but you don't know where that is. And so I think if you can get close to it and like while pushing the envelope um, and survive to tell a tale, it's worth it. But you know, if you wouldn't survive, it'd absolutely not be worth it. So these are kind of like yeah. hard stuff to rationalize as a climber. Like what does it look like moving forward with the other objectives I have elsewhere in the world? And how do you do them sustainably and responsibly and, think there's a certain degree of risk you have to assume but what is too much because you don't want to be an idiot right so i don't really have the answers to that stuff i just <laughs> know kind of um how i navigate it but it's hard to articulate hard to teach it. and articulate yeah let me ask you this when <clears throat> when you find yourself in those positions where you have postured yourself you've chosen you what you chose to go to norway you chose to you know ride that day with those conditions like you did your research you did your homework you made a um, educated decision. Um, where's God in that for you? Like when you find yourself in those moments of absolute fatigue, like I've gone beyond what my brain is telling me is okay. My body feels like it's seizing up or I'm in this critically dangerous spot. Is, is that a, like, like Dave Eubank, is that a, a constant conversation with God for you? Or like, what's your spiritual, what's your spiritual life like in those moments? Yeah, I think it's a pretty like hand in hand thing. Like I don't, I don't really isolate any part of my life from like, um, conversation with God. So climbing I've it's, that's, it goes back to like, I feel a responsibility to do something with these passions I have. Like I want to climb stuff. I'm sort of like kind of obsessed with it. And I have, I'm like, therefore I need to do something about that. Yeah. So it's kind of this full permission. So it's never like, Oh, like, am I like, does God want me to be here? It's not, it's none of that crap. It's more like, um, yeah, it's kind of just like this constant conversation with God, perhaps, and like being in the mountains and um, like being 
I don't know, having those sorts of physical and mental experiences kind of just like, it's this weirdly spiritual experience with God that I can't quite articulate, but mm. I think that, yeah, I think that he, he loves it and he's like made me to do that stuff. So it's kind of just this. Good. I, yeah. I, I love that you can't <laughs> it's hard to articulate, I guess. I, I, I'm glad that you can't oh, articulate 100%. that. That's, yeah. that's actually so beautiful. And I, I think, it, I think that's between you and God. And I think, I, you know, the reason I asked just to, you know, I, I think is partly there's some jealousy there because I, I love those moments too. And I find, you know, we, you and I have talked about this too. It's kind of like, you know, I'm, there was a moment in my life where I felt like I ran out of thrills. I'm like, I can't like, mm-hmm. I can't jump any higher on my snowboard. I can't surf a bigger wave. I can't like, I don't know what else, I don't know where to take this. <clears throat> and what I craved in those moments of, um, you know, my, what I felt like was my threshold was just that intimacy with God. It was like, it was a special moment. I remember like down in Patagonia, I was in a critical zone. I put, I got myself into it and I was just like, Oh my gosh, I thought of my wife, I thought of my kids. And I had about 250 steps across this, this icy coolyard to like traverse it. And I'm like one step and I didn't have anything to self-arrest. I was like, I was in trouble. And I was like, well, Lord, here we go. It's like one step. And it was just like, you know, 250 thank you Jesuses across this thing. And, <laughs> um, and I look back on it and it's like, yeah, it haunts me because it was a bad decision. I, and I put myself there. And, um, but I'm also so thankful I had it because it was just like this beautiful little moment with God. And I'll, I'll never forget like what was going through my mind those times. I was thinking of strange <laughs> people like that, you know, like, yeah. oh, I, and I don't know why, but it was just like this weird human place to be. And I think how you go through life is a beautiful invitation mm-hmm. to all of us to, mm-hmm. um, you know, n- few will have the talents you possess, but I think the heart, your heart is what is so, what makes you an amazing human being. Um, your kindness, your, you know, like most people I've, you know, used to film snowboard movies. Like I, people who are good at sports, usually you can, you can see by their egos and you don't possess that. You have a beautiful humility. You have a beautiful curiosity. Um, you're just a, you're just a rad dude. And I'm super thankful to be your friend. I'm super thankful to have you on a nation's team Mm -hmm. as we, you know, like that's our heart is that, that curiosity, um, for like, what's around the corner? What's, what's over there? What's God doing in that part of the world? Um, good, bad, or indifferent. Let's go find out. And, um, we need more journalists like you. We need more storytellers like you, more people who are willing to go to those places and see those things. And so I just want to say, I love you. I'm super thankful, um, that you, uh, said yes to this crazy, uh, ordeal of going and filming, uh, the dispatch series, and I want our audience to know too, like th- this is exciting in, in the coming weeks, Jesse Schluntz right there behind that door uh, is, door is editing one. away <laughs> as we speak. And we're excited to show you um, what God's doing in and amongst uh, the Free Burma Rangers through Dave and Karen Eubank and their entire family and everyone who supports them um, in the field. And it's just, um, it's these types of stories that get me out of bed in the morning um, as a Christian. It's being around people like James who, um, has that heart of curiosity and wonder and intimacy with God that I think is the solution to um, not only a, a healthy spirituality and abundant Christian life that Jesus is inviting us to, but it's really unifying, you know? Um, it's really, um, I think it, 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 there's some hope to that for the entire church that we might um, all say yes to that. Instead of having the absolute answers um, that we know is the gospel, we're not saying that, but we're saying that to go like to find out like man what does Christianity look like in and amongst yeah. Burma in in and amongst um, civil war and so 
Love you. Thanks for being on the podcast. Final thoughts? Yeah, I want to try. I, I just want to embarrass him one one more time. <laughs> Let's do it. Because I loved what you were saying, just affirming a lot of the things that you see in James and how he's, um, you know, a, a picture in some ways of of the tribe that we we believe um, exists around the world. That nations wants to kind of find and map and invite into this movement that God is doing something in the world. One of the things I love about your story that I think is such a takeaway for me, James, is. You know, you talked a lot about, hey, I had, like, I always have had these desires and these dreams to get out, to explore the world, to, you know, encounter its beauty, to push myself, you know. Um, and you know, we talked earlier about how for some people that can just be a, like a self-centered pursuit. It's just it's just for the, mm-hmm. the, the adrenaline, adrenaline rush. But there's been this reflective side of you, this like faith component side of you that is really also begin to develop and mature after that encounter you had at 18. And part of what I feel like your story unveils is a lot of, of God's heart. We oftentimes, I hear us talking about God in a way that assumes that he's, yeah, this punitive figure who's up there and who's just kind of mildly or not so mildly disappointed and upset with us in part because we believe this false reality that he has like his will for our lives is this singular path that is our job to go and to find. And if we don't find that path and then stay on that path, we are somehow disappointing him, letting him down, being disobedient. And we're like, we're not living up to our potential. Right. Um, but the reality is that your story identifies and so clearly is that he's no he's put desires passions longings visions into your heart and he he longs to invite you into a story that you get to co-create with him that we get to co-create with him like the will of god is this actually pretty flexible, creative, malleable, resilient thing where he's like, oh, cool. We want to like, we need to tuck and roll here. Great. Like, let's do it. We'll come out the other side and then, then ask the question of what's next. And so I love how, you know, yeah, you've, you've climbed the peaks and you've surfed the waves and you've done all these different things and you've ridden your motorcycle from you know, the top of the earth to the bottom of the earth. And the next adventure, as Joel's kind of saying, is this next one of, well, how, hey, how do I steward all of these experiences have given me these gifts and this perspective. How can I use that mm. to serve something greater than myself? How can I say yes to an invitation to go to the other side of the world into a war zone and then to find people and to see them in their fu- the fullness of their humanity, the fullness of the beauty of who God's created them to be as they're struggling to like find meaning and joy and friendship, capture that story, bring it back to us, and then to be an advocate for that. And not this like angry, you know, you're not this angry, uh, preacher on a soapbox, you know, shaming, uh, everybody else and being like, well, you got to do it my way or you're doing it wrong. It's, you're very much, everything you shared today has felt really invitational. And I'm just really grateful for that, man. So thanks for being our bud. Thanks for being on our team. Um, and, uh, yeah, pushing us, man, to go a little bit further and, uh, find out what God's got around the next corner. It's been awesome. Over and out. I think we've done it. Dude, I think we did it. Over and out from Nations Media. Thanks for tuning in. Stay tuned for Dispatch coming soon. Yep. Thanks, James. Dude, what fun.